Hello, brothers and sisters and Bereans. Um, I'm so happy to finally get this podcast out. I tell you what, it has been a little bit of a battle lately, spiritual battle, and I don't think I'm the only one, um, but I'm glad that I'm finally here. And you guys are kind of my guinea pigs because I'm sitting up. I'm setting up for class for tonight to meet in about three hours. And I have a lot I want to cover, and I'm not sure how much I'm going to be able to get to. So you're kind of my guinea pigs, and I'm just going to cover what I so you're special if you're listening to this because you get all of it. And um, they may not get all of it tonight if we run low on time. So anyways, today we are covering the Torah. I'm really, really, really excited about it. I love the Torah. I feel like the Torah is something that is incredibly misunderstood. Um, sometimes taught incorrectly, um, or just sometimes not taught at all, to be honest. And I, and I can't say I blame a lot of people for avoiding to, uh, teaching it because it can be really complicated and it, it doesn't need to be, but I get it. Um, you know, a few years ago, I was teaching Genesis. It was the first time I ever really went deep in a Bible study with other women. Um, the, the study I'm doing now with the Torah is men and women, but at the time it was just a women's ministry because they were complementarian and that's just, that's whatever. I respect that. Um, anyways, <clears throat> the women had never gone that deep in Bible study and they were like, can we please keep going into Exodus? Because I've never really studied the Old Testament before and I was like, <laughs> yes of course we can and when I went and asked the pastor and was like hey they want to keep going into Exodus if it's okay with you we're going to do that and he's like oh no and at the time I was so offended that he like he wasn't even a part of our study he didn't know what the women were interested in I did and I took it so offensively and um that he didn't want me to teach that and in hindsight knowing what I know now Versus what I knew then, I'm glad that he told me no. Um, because there is such a depth of understanding and there is a danger when you're teaching the Torah um, that I was not aware of back then. And maybe he wasn't either. Maybe it was just the Holy Spirit shut me down. I don't know. But um, I am grateful to essentially have a second opportunity to do it and to teach it with more of a full knowledge of the counsel of God in that. So I'm going to pray first um, before we start, and then we'll get started. God, I just thank you for this day. God, I thank you for each and every ear that is listening and every heart that is hungry to know you and to know your word more, God. I pray that you protect them from any type of deceptive spirit or spirit of pride or a spirit of aggression anything that might be trying to come into their lives and to prevent them from knowing who you truly are and how you truly intended your word to be god i just um pray a prayer of protection over them guard guard them with your angels god and guard their families and help them to grow in the meat of the word with the meat of the word so that we can glorify you in our searchings and in our findings. God, we love you so much. We praise you in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Okay. So if you're following along, if you do not have the slides or I am actually printing out, um, uh, like timelines. Um, why is this word evading me? Um, outlines, sorry. <laughs> one of those days um outlines for each book in the bible so if you don't have that information please shoot me a message on facebook abigail elizabeth or send me an email at abigail todd 
gmail.com and I'd be happy to send this stuff to you because it's going to be um, quite a bit to follow. So to start out, if you're looking at the first slide, I have this book that has been such a great comforting book for me to go back to, to touch base with whenever I start to get a little bit confused. It's written by a Messianic Jew, meaning that he is a, um, a Jewish believer in Jesus as a Messiah. And it's called Reading Moses, Seeing Jesus. And it really talks about how when you go through the Torah and you're reading through the Torah, you can read what Moses intended for Israel, but then we can go back and see where Jesus is placed in there and how we aren't necessarily supposed to take the things of Israel and apply them today because it was it was in context for Israel during that time, not not all of it necessarily for us today. Great book um, and just a great image and message of reading Moses and seeing Jesus as we dig through the Torah. So the Torah is the Hebrew word for the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You'll hear that very oftentimes with Hebrew speakers. You'll hear it with Muslims and um Let's see, what's the other one? Probably Muslims know more about the Torah than most Christians, which is a little scary. But that's a very, it is a documentation that they respect, even though they may not necessarily agree with everything, especially when it comes to Abraham's line. It is a documentation that they respect. Um, okay, so the Torah is the foundation of the Bible written by Moses through the Holy Spirit, okay? It's the book of beginnings. It's the creation of the world. It's the creation of a nation. What that actually looks like logistically, politically, morally, and spiritually. Sometimes we miss that when we get through, when we're going into the Torah and we're reading all these beautiful stories. And what I like about it is that it's mostly written, at least Genesis especially, is written almost like a novel. And you can get yourself lost in it, but it's easy to kind of, you need to come, kind of come back, look at the outline and realize that that's what is happening. It is a creation of a nation through the loins of Abraham. That is one of the covenants that was given to him. The Torah, Chuck Misser ha had this awesome, um, he, it's called Codes. He has a whole book on codes in the Bible. And it talks about every 49 letters from the beginning of the chapter spells Torah from Genesis to Exodus. In Leviticus, every seven letters spells the word Yahweh, Yehovah, Y-H-W-H. And in Numbers and Deuteronomy, every 49 letters is Torah spelled backwards. So that basically shows you that in Genesis and Exodus, it's pointing to Yahweh in Leviticus. Numbers and Deuteronomy is pointing back to Yahweh in Leviticus because one's written forward, one's written backwards, and it all points to Yahweh. So why is Yahweh in Leviticus? Because that's where the blood offerings happen. It does not matter what you do. It does not matter what laws you keep, what feasts you keep, how clean you eat, whether those are your choices that you, your personal convictions or not. None of it matters without the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is absolutely essential. And we're going to circle back to that in just a little bit. Remember what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us pure again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The blood, which we'll get to in just a little bit with Leviticus, the blood offerings is what brings the people of Israel back to God. Um, so I have this really cool image of when they were tabernacle 
tabernacling out in the wilderness. The, um, if you're looking at the image, there is the tent, the tabernacle in the middle, and you'll see a one, two, three, four around it. Those are, that's part of the, the offering areas. It's also part of the Levitical priesthood areas. And then you'll have the tribes around them and, and the number of the people. And we know what the numbers of the people are because of the book of Numbers. Do you get it? Numbers of the people. Numbers. Okay. We know what the numbers of the people are of the tribes because of that book. So if you're looking at it from an aerial perspective, based on the numbers around the tabernacle between Dan, Asher, and Naphtali being on the right side, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin being on top, Gad, Simeon, and Reuben on the left side, and Judah, Iskar, and Zebulon on the bottom, it forms a literal cross, which I think is really, really, really cool to see that. Um, so I just wanted to give you all kind of a visual perspective of that, um, just because I'm nerdy and it's fun. Okay, so before we dive completely in the context of the Torah, the author is Moses. Moses is often credited for writing Genesis and the Torah in its most entirety. Joshua or Caleb was likely concluded it because Moses died. So he, you know, he couldn't write it then. Um, Luke confirms this in Luke 24, 27 and Luke 24, 44, that Moses was the author in the beginning. So as we go through, as you're going through and as you're reading on your in your own times and in your own studies, passages such as this is the history of and this is the book of and this is the genealogy. This is going to indicate the start or end of records that Moses collected, which would make a lot of sense because before Moses consolidated everything, it was just a bunch of different records that were passed down from generation to generation. This is a quote from Morris. It says, thus, it, prob it is probably that the book of Genesis was originally written by actual eyewitnesses of the events reported therein. So Noah likely wrote about the time of Noah and likely wrote about his genealogy that was passed down. Abraham wrote about Abraham, Isaac wrote about Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, you know, does that make sense? They likely wrote it all and would just pass it down from generation to generation. Um, probably the original narratives were recorded on tables of stone or clay in common practice of early times and then handed down from father to son, finally coming into the possession of Moses. Moses perhaps collected the appropriate sections for compilation inserted his own editorial additions and comments and provided smooth transitions from one document to the next with the final result being the book of Genesis as we have received it. And also we'll see with Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, it is a consolidation of mul multiple things for Israel and as they were becoming a nation. So it's really kind of cool and makes sense why Moses was so busy during that time, why he had so much to do and what an undertaking that would be but it makes sense that they would want all of that together for Israel as they were becoming a nation. So the time period, Moses lived during a time period known as the Late Bronze Age, which was about 1550 to 1200 BC. There's an area of dispute on when Moses lived. Most people, and I'm myself included, so I will be using these um, time periods as record, believe it was around four, 1445 BC based on the internal evidence of scripture, 1 Kings 6, 1, Judges 6, 11, 26, multi, both of those give reference to that. Others believe that it was around 1290 BC, based on archaeological evidence alone. No scriptural evidence to support that. 
Um, so I'm going to go with the scriptural evidence on that and say that it was probably around 1400 BC, but ultimately it's just 200 years. Who really cares? You know, why are we splitting hairs over this? Okay. Genesis. Okay. There is young earth and old earth theories with this. Um, I am a young earth theorizer, believer. It really, really doesn't matter, but I'm someone that believes that the earth is somewhere around just over 6,000 years old. Um, don't lose respect for me over that. There's reasons that I believe that. There are people who don't believe in that. And you know what? That's okay. It's fine. But ultimately, Genesis is broken up into two sections. You've got the first section, which is actually quite a bit of time. Like we don't realize just how much time is in Genesis because it's just 50 chapters. So we kind of miss that. But the entrance of sin on earth is essentially chapters one through 11. So you've got the creation stories, two creation stories, actually one and two, they don't contradict each other, but they're just told from different points of view. Okay. In chapters one and two, then you've got the fall of man from chapters three to four, four, three to four. You've got the flood from chapters five to 10. I think this is really interesting. So likely when the earth was created it was somewhere around 4,000 BC. The flood happened around 2,350 BC. That's thousands of years. So we always think like, I mean, you know, the flood happens in chapter six of Genesis, you know, and it's like, well, geez, they weren't even around that long and God's already flooding the earth. Well, actually, they they were. I mean, they were around for 2,000 years. Look how far we've fallen just 2,000 years from when Jesus was crucified. It's been about 2,000 years and look how far we've come. I mean, it just doesn't take a, a nation, a world long to fall from the truth. So that's around the time that the flood happened. This is um, the flood is recorded from chapter five to 10. You've got the genealogy in chapter five, the flood in six, and then when everything is all said and done in chapter 10. Then you have the Tower of Babel. So it wasn't very long before they rebelled again in the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. So now after that, it's a little bit of a break because after Noah, what's so sad about Noah's life is that he started on such a high. Like he was the only one that was considered blameless, whether that was because he kept the records, he kept um, the altar covenants and um, the blood covenant with God or what. Um, then you got the Tower of Babel, but then you've got like, it's just kind of after he died, there just really wasn't much going on. He ended his life on such a low, which is always really sad to me. But then we have God preparing someone else that is very unexpected, Abraham. And you know, when you're young, you think of Father Abraham, he was always ready for God. No, he wasn't. And you'll see that in chapters 12, that where he's called out of the land of Uz, which by the way, you see, I don't even know how to say that without sounding like a tarred. Um, anyways, but this is the same land that Job was from and likely around the same time period, which is really interesting. I always wonder if Abraham and Job were friends or if they were not friends, if they knew each other. I don't know. Maybe they did it. Maybe it's completely different time periods. I don't know. Maybe it was before flood. Um, we don't really know 100% for Job. But we do know that his book is older than the book of Genesis, meaning that it was before Moses wrote Genesis. So um, kind of cool. The time of Abraham is around 2165 BC. So about 200 years after the flood. Okay. 
Um, you got the time of Abraham is from chapter 12 to chapter 13. You got the time of Jake, Isaac from 24 to 27. And then the time of Jacob or Israel um, from chapters 28 to 50. Now, you know probably that most of those chapters are about Joseph. You'll see that I have all of the tribes of Judah listed. You know, there's supposed to be 12 tribes, but there's actually 14. And there's always two of the tribes, Ephraim and, Ephraim and Manasseh, are Joseph's sons. And Jacob adopted them in at, on his deathbed. And so, but you'll notice when the tribes are listed all throughout the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament in Revelation 7, there's still 12 tribes listed. So sometimes it's just Joseph is listed and it's assumed that Ephraim and Manasseh are underneath it. Or if it's during a time of war and the tribes are listed, often Levi is left out and one tribe, usually Dan, that's been rebellious is left out or whatever. Um, so there's always one tribe left out and the other tribe is assumed under Joseph because it's likely his son. Um, so it's just kind of interesting. But I have Judah underlined and we always hear that Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. But Judah is the fourth son of Jacob. This is all about the inheritance, the blessing, the birthright. It was Reuben's. And he forfeited that birthright because he slept with Jacob's wife, not his mom, but his concubine, his stepmom's concubine. I can't remember which one. It was Bilhah. I think it was Bilhah. Anyways, um, slept with, he defiled basically Jacob's bed. And thus he sacrificed his birthright in doing so. He's constantly trying to win that birthright back, which you can't. Once it's gone, it's gone. Um, Simeon and Levi gave up their birthright whenever their sister was raped by a king. And so the king rapes their sister. We'll see, you, you can read this in Genesis. Rapes their sister, falls in love with her after he rapes her. Great. Thanks a lot, guy. And um, then he comes to them saying that he wants to marry her. What does he have to do? And they said, well, you need to be circumcised because the people of God, the Jews, the Hebrew, they weren't Jews then, they were Hebrew nation. Um, the Hebrews are circumcised. And so they're like, okay, so this king goes back and circumcises all of his men and himself. Okay? Okay, these are grown men. All right? It does feel good. On day three, they are in their weakest state of healing. And Simeon and Levi go and slay all of the men. And Jacob is furious. He literally says that they have put a stench in the nose of those around them about him. So meaning that the people are looking up at God's people, looking at God's people and putting their nose up at them because of what they had done. Meaning it's a very poor witness of God. They used something holy and made it unholy and used it for murder. So they forfeited their birthright and it was given to Judah. That is why Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Okay, isn't that cool? So the, the odds of it going all the way down to Joseph is just not, I mean, you have a lot of brothers that would have to forfeit it. Um, so in Genesis, we really cover that it's just important about Israel because that's essentially where Israel is actually given her name. Israel itself is 
feminine because it's a nation, it's a country, it's considered the wife of God, but it's actually Jacob, okay? Jacob, Israel, you get it? Um, there are four unconditional covenants given to Israel, and this is why I cannot teach that the church has replaced Israel and Israel is done with. There is the Abrahamic covenant that was given to Abraham in Genesis 12 um, that talks specifically about an everlasting covenant. God put Abraham asleep. And made it with himself so that Abraham nor his descendants could not break this covenant. Because if they were going to, they would. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Um, this is an everlasting covenant made, unconditional covenant made with Abraham himself about his descendants. Then you've got the land covenant. Um, that the whole land of Canaan, which is the land of Israel, has given he has given to Israel as an everlasting possession. Okay, so we've seen where they come back and conquered their land. Their land has been established back in 1948, and it had not been a nation. They had not been a nation for quite some time. So we see that he has brought that back to fruition. Um, we still have not seen where he is still their God, the everlasting covenant. We're going to get to that in just a second. We've got the Davidic covenant that's talking about establishing God's throne through David forever. When we say the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That is the throne of David, the kingdom of God, where Jesus will rule from the throne of David. This is a promise. This is an everlasting covenant, an unconditional covenant given to David in 2 Samuel 7. And um, the messianic prophecy is given in Isaiah 9, which is um, reiterating that. Excuse me. <clears throat> And then you have the everlasting covenant, Jeremiah 31. This has also not come, this has not completely come into fruition, but we know that it will, which is another reason why replacement theology does not make sense. Um, it is the Jeremiah 31, 31, where he will make a new covenant with Israel. He has made a new covenant with us already. Jesus has with those who believed in him. And we are the first fruits of that Gentile and Jew, but not all of Israel. Israel as a whole rejected that, rejected Jesus as Messiah, rejected the new covenant. Um, and Stephen talks about that in Acts 7 um, at the very end of it. So we are waiting for that to come in. This is a new covenant. It will happen. It just has not happened yet. And I do believe that it will come in um, very soon because I believe that Israel is standing just like in Ezekiel 37 in the Valley of Dry Bones where they are standing up. The bones are raised up and they're standing there, but they have no life in them because they have not received the spirit of God. It has not been breathed into them, but y'all, we are on the cusp of it. Okay, that is Genesis, the time of 4000 B.C. to 1745 B.C. Quite a bit, almost 3000, just, just, well... Just over to 2,300 years, uh, 3,300, 2,300, sorry, math, I'm an English major. All right, around 2,300 years have passed just in the first book of the Bible. Okay, that's quite a bit of time. So we're going to move on into Exodus. And it looks like it happens pretty seamlessly from Genesis. Joseph dies. He's a really big deal in Egypt. And um, Egypt basically saw him as he was basically the king's ambassador. They had a high respect for him. They gave him a great burial. Jacob, all of their sons, they were in a famine. They came to live in Egypt with Joseph during the famine. The problem is, is they never went back home. And that's a big deal because that is their promised land, the land of Canaan that is theirs. They stayed in Egypt. And guess how long they stayed there for? 
300 years had passed after Joseph died and the Hebrew people stayed there and they began to multiply and multiply and then Pharaoh got scared of them and that's how they came into slavery. Isn't that interesting? So the time of Exodus happened sometime around 1530 BC and 1410 BC. Moses was likely born around 1530. Um, so we've got and the Exodus, the Exodus happens in chapters 1 through 18. You've got the rising of Moses and the judgment of the plagues. Moses likely was around the age of 40 when all of this happened. Because remember, he was as a baby given in the river and um, Pharaoh's daughter brought him in. and He was raised up with Ramesses, or maybe it was Pharaoh's wife, I can't remember. Anyways, he was raised up with Ramesses, who was the king. Um, anyways... About 40 years happened when he killed the Hebrew man. He fled, saw the burning bush, came back to say, you know, let my people go. Um, so I think that that's really interesting because we always picture Moses in his 20s because that's what um, the prince of Egypt made him look like. And that's a lie. So Passover happens around 12, chapters 12 to chapters 13. And I will never forget the moment that I made the connection. I remember sitting on my couch reading through pa the Passover and making the connection of Jesus being the Lamb of God and the Passover Lamb representing Jesus. And you put the blood on the doorposts. And when you participate in the new covenant, the new blood covenant, and you allow the blood of Jesus on the doorpost of your body over your heart, the death angel will pass over you. You will not experience a second death. So I think that that's just really cool. So cool. So much, so many patterns in that, in just chapters 12 and 13 alone. Um, then you have the crossing of the Red Sea that happens between chapters 14 and 18. Then we have the law, the old covenant that's given to Israel. This is the this is often referred to as a messianic covenant. This happens in chapters 20, 19 and 20. And I do think it's really important for us to know this. Most people don't know what the Ten Commandments are and why even God gave it to us. And I think that it's so important. So just as an overview, you got, um, <clears throat> you shall have no other gods before you. You shall not create idols. Do not take God's name in vain. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Um, sorry, I'm going from memory here. Um, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear a false witness and do not covet. Okay? <clears throat> covet your neighbor's wife. So that's it in a, in a gist. What's so interesting is that Jesus is basically doing the same thing in Matthew chapter 5, where Moses sat on a mountain, got the old covenant, and brought it down for the people. Jesus is sitting on a mountain in, in um, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and he is presenting the stipulations for the new covenant. It's so very interesting. And you'll see it so... It's almost more freeing. It's more interpersonal um, for what Jesus does in Matthew 5 and 7. And what he's doing is taking, fulfilling the old covenant and expanding it. He's launching it up. No longer is um, murder just an act. But it is also in the thought. Of the, it's in the thought life. It's an eternal thing because your thoughts are in your soul. It's an eternal thing. It's not just an act of the body. It is an act of the soul. Um, it's in your heart. 
adultery is no longer just an act that someone commits. It is also, it starts in the heart. This is what Jesus says. If you lust upon a woman, you've already committed adultery with her. Um, so it's the same type of thing. So where I tend to disagree with some people about the Sabbath, the Sabbath was a day for people to rest, rest their spirits, rest their bodies. It's argued on whether it was Saturday on Sunday, probably was Saturday, Friday, sundown to Saturday, sundown. Doesn't really matter to me. Jesus multiple times is berated by the Pharisees about not keeping the Sabbath the way he should about his disciples, not keeping the Sabbath the way that he should. And it's this, it's the same idea that he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Why would they rest when I am with them? Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God, in the seven days of creation, on the very last day, you know, you got evening and morning, the third day, evening and morning, the fourth day, all the way until the seventh day. And on the seventh day, God rested and there was no evening and there was no morning. This is an eternal rest. That God is talking about. And I believe that our Sabbath rest is no longer bound to just one day. But I think it's an eternal thing that we have to literally, now that we have the spirit of God with us in our temples, dwelling within us, we have to do every day. We can't just be like, well, I'm not going to rest in him until it's Saturday. Because then if it's Saturday, then I can do it. I do think it's time we should prioritize prioritize taking care of our bodies and taking and spending time with family. But I think that that's very different than resting in the spirit of God in our tabernacle, tabernacle in our temple, you know? Okay. So this is the law given from chapters 19 to 20. Then you have the tabernacle. These, this is chapters 25 through 40. And it makes my eyes cross every time I go through it. However, there is so much imagery happening in this. I can't even give you all the details of it. The blueprints of this tabernacle is chapters 25 through 27. And then you have details about the priesthood, the renewed covenant, and the tabernacle details in chapters 28 through 40. There's a lot of detail because this is the tabernacle is the temple of God before they had a temple. It is their tabernacle, their time, their, the way that the high priest would go on behalf of Israel to, it was the only way that they could tabernacle with God and meaning to have a relationship with him was through this. It was the, it was basically a mobile temple. Okay. So that's Exodus. Um, I have a little image here about all the different arguments on where they crossed in the Red Sea, whether it was, there's a one, two, or a A or a B. Um, I tend to lean toward the A. Um, some people lean toward the B and number two. I don't know many people who lean toward number one. I mean, to me, that's just a joke. But anyways, it really doesn't matter. What we do know is that they did cross the Red Sea somewhere. And all of that is the Red Sea. So um, anyways, we'll get into that in a little bit more detail in just a little bit. Okay. Leviticus. All right. Whew. You guys hanging in there? You hanging in with me? Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy were all written in the wilderness, in the wilderness wanderings. It took 40 hours for Israel to get out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. We are seeing all of the um, wanderings happening mainly in Numbers, but in Leviticus specifically, this is primarily for the priests of Israel. Do you get it? Levi? Leviticus, do you get it? Okay. Um, 
Levitical offerings is chapters 1 through 7. You've got the priests, the consecration of them in chapter 8 through 10. You've got the holiness and daily life in chapters 11 through 22. The holy days in chapter 23. And the law and the prophecies um, for the promised land in chapters 24 through 26. And then you've got a dedicated and devotion in chapters 27. What's really cool about the Levitical offerings is that you see so much of what Christ fulfilled in these. You've got voluntary offerings in chapters 1 through 3. These are a sweet savor to God. These are burnt offerings. These are meal offerings. These are peace offerings. Um, then you have compulsory. Um, these are non-voluntary, meaning that they're in, you need to do this. These are non-sweet savor, and this is for us. So the other one was just to God. We give them burnt offerings, meal offerings, peace offerings. This was basically like their worship to God. The compulsory was a non-sweet savor. It was for us. This was our sin, the sin offerings. I keep saying our, like I'm Israel. Um, these are the sin offerings. This is for your evil nature, the sins against God. You have your trespass offerings, which is the fruit of that evil nature, the sins against man. And then you have the priest's instructions on what they're to do. And there's all these details about, you know, you had birds were for the lowliest. You had sheep um, or lambs was for middle class. And you had bulls for the high upper class. So there was all these different levels of classes, which I always think is really interesting. Um, all the details for the priests. Um, holiness and daily life is what... Um, I feel like a lot of people don't really focus on um, when people say that we need to keep the old covenant um, or we need to keep the Torah or anything like that. A lot of times they'll focus on feasts. They'll focus on um, dietary restrictions. They'll focus on the Sabbath, but they don't really talk about this holiness and daily life chapters 11 through 22. I mean, there are a lot, a lot of details about this that I don't really hear about unless I read about it specifically. You know, there's a Nazarene vow in there that talks about um, how, you know, you shouldn't shave your beard. Men shouldn't shave their beard, especially if you're going to take this vow. Um, you've got where if a woman has been has been menstruating, you're not to, to have intimacy with her for seven days after she's done because she's considered unclean. Same thing for after she has a baby. And it's ironic because if she has a boy baby, then you can have intimacy with her after a certain amount of period. But if it's been if it's a female child, then you have to wait even longer. I don't remember the specific of the days, but it's like, okay, well, thanks a lot. Um, there's a reason for it, I guess. But anyways, what's it's all very interesting because it was for Israel. It was a, it was to set them apart as a people and as a nation. Um, it was a moral thing for them. It was also a political. This is really about the sacrifice, about cleanliness that is set Israel apart as a nation from other nations. Um, what to bring this into the New Testament? There's a salt offering. And it says, in every offering of your meal offering, this is part of the voluntary offerings, you should season it with salt. And you shall not omit the salt of the covenant of your God and of your um, meal offering. With all your offerings, you shall present salt. This is called the salt covenant. And what did Jesus do in Matthew 5.13? You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on under people's feet. This 
is so important for us because this is we are seeing just how it's a shadow do you see that how the salt offering was a shadow of what was to come it was just literally just a salt that you were to put in your offering to god in your meal offering to god now we are part of the salt covenant it's no longer about our offering but it's how we offer ourselves to god um, and to others so anyways really cool um, so let's move on to numbers. Numbers. Okay. So it really probably should be called in the wilderness. That is the direct translation of its original Hebrew name, but somehow it's got lost in translation and we call it numbers because of the census that is given in chapters one through five. Okay. That's where we get that number, that, that name numbers. It's a preparation of a pilgrimage in chapters 1 through 8. Um, you've got Israel leaves Mount Sinai in chapters 9 through 10. Okay, so they've been camped at Mount Sinai for a while. Moses was up getting the covenant with God. He is angry. He hits the rock. I mean, there's all this stuff going on. Um, and so, but they have to go to the promised land, right? That's what this whole thing is about. Israel travels from Sinai to Kadesh from chapters 11 through 12. However, Israel's complaining. They're not having a lot of faith in God. So Kadesh defeats Israel in chapters 13 through 14 because of Israel's fear and, their, and her lack of faith. So Israel wanders the wilderness from chapters 15 through 25. And they wander for so long that the older generation passes away. The entire generation has to pass away for the new generation to prepare to enter into the promised land. And that's in chapters 26 through 36. There's a lot going on in here. What's really cool in here is um, where they become faithless. And God and Moses sends out fiery serpents, which is actually the same word serpent is the fiery serpent is the word for um, not cherubim, seraphim, which is an angel. It's, all, it's the same word used interchangeably. So I wonder if they were like, is there an actual fire? Serpent? I don't know. Anyways, um, I just think that's interesting that they're the same word. Um, but they had to lift up a bronze serpent on a stick. And when Moses lifted that up, if they looked upon that stick and had faith that that serpent on the stick would um, would make them better, they would be well. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands died, but this saved them. So Jesus gives us a revelation into this in John 3:14. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. This is a visual representation of what Jesus became on behalf of us. We will never fully understand the sacrifice that he made when he left his heavenly dwellings, took on the flesh of man, and then took on all of our sin on the world of the world on his shoulders on that cross. He became sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He became that serpent, someone holy, someone blameless, shed his blood for our sins. That's the, the whole lamb on there. So that's just really cool graphic detail about that um, and just a, a fun little thing tucked into numbers that sometimes people miss. Okay, and lastly, we have Deuteronomy. Okay, Deuteronomy is kind of a little bit easier. It's broken into three sermons. You've got the first sermon, chapters 1 through 4. 
And Moses is basically retelling what God has done for Israel, a retelling of their journey. The second sermon is from chapters 5 through 26. What God expects of Israel to keep the law and the additional laws added. There's 613 total laws and decrees. Isn't that crazy? Um, and he basically tells them, also, you cannot. I mean, toward the end of Deuteronomy, he's like, you have to keep this, but also you will fail, which is really interesting. They cover that in the book, Reading um, Moses, Seeing Jesus. And then in the third sermon, chapters 27 through 34, it's basically um, what God will do for Israel, the restoration regained through repentance. So I have a little bit of a detailed description about um, Israel, um, just their wanderings. Um, you have the traditional Mount Sinai right there at the bottom. That's where... Um, some people say that that's where um, Moses received the covenant. Most, however, believe that it happened at the Jabal al-Laws, which is in Saudi Arabia. And Paul actually talks about that in Galatians as well. Um, so that's probably where it happened. As far as the crossing of the Red Sea, I don't really think it matters. This picture has him crossing at the bottom. Um, it could have crossed up at the top. I don't know. Um, and it doesn't really matter. So we end with Deuteronomy ending around Four, well, Moses' life ended around 410. Moses lived to be 120 years old. Isn't that crazy? And he didn't get to enter into the promised land, but God allowed him. He had mercy on him, and he allowed him to at least see the promised land. You know, he'd never even been there. He was raised in Egypt. He went through 40 years with these awful Israelites who had no faith. But the reason he couldn't enter into the promised land is because he messed up. The pattern of God. He was to Israel was complaining and grumbling. God told him to strike the rock and water would come out of the rock. So he struck the rock. Water came out. Okay. A couple, I don't know, a couple years go by and Israel starts mumbling, bumbling, mumbling, grumbling and complaining again. And God tells him to speak to the rock and the water will come out. But Moses in his anger, because he had anger issues, you know, um, struck the rock. Water still came out, but he messed up the pattern that God was setting. This is a visual representation of Old Covenant and New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, there had to be a striking to happen. Blood had to be shed in order to atone for the sins, in order to bring the sinner back to God in holiness and cleansingness. Blood had to be shed. Striking had to happen. That is fulfilled and Jesus being struck once for all, the just for the unjust. The next time speaking comes living water. This is representation of grace. That grace is spoken to us. We did not have to die. We didn't have to shed any blood to know who our Savior was. Right? Moses messed up the pattern for the old covenant and the new covenant. Um so, and because of that, he couldn't enter into the promised land. Okay, so to give you an overview before we go into more details, the overview is Genesis is the book of beginnings. Exodus is the birth of a nation. Leviticus is the law of a nation. Numbers is describes the, the wilderness wanderings. And Deuteronomy gives us Moses' final message, okay? So I'm going to take just a couple minutes, I guess, I don't even know how long I'm gone, um, to describe 
a little bit, if you want to pause here and come back is, um, and take a break, I get it. Um, we're going to talk about the old covenant and the new covenant, because this is what I feel like a lot of people don't fully understand is the old covenant and new covenant righteousness of the law and righteousness by the law versus versus righteousness in Christ. Okay. Um, you've got the blood of animals versus the blood of Christ. You've got one written on stone versus the other written on hearts. You've got one that's a shadow, the other that's a substance. One was glorious. Um, the other was more glorious. One had an end. The other has no end. One was the law of Moses. The other is the law of the Messiah. One is the law of works. The other is the law of faith. One is a law of sin and death. The other is a law of spirit and life. One is has many sacrifices. The other has one sacrifice. One has the, the power is powerless to save. The other is powerful to save. One is an annual atonement. The other is an eternal atonement. One has an earthly tabernacle. The other has a heavenly tabernacle. One is a ministry of death. The other is a ministry of life. One is an outer form, which is the flesh. The other is inner reality, which is what I was talking about when Jesus brought everything into an inner reality. The spirit ministry of condemnation is on one. The other is a ministry of reconciliation. These are the stark differences between the old covenant and the new covenant. Okay. It's so, so, so important for us to know these things, to know, um, the differences, um, one of the things I love about is um, the New Testament. And I have like a new love for the New Testament because I see where it's bringing all these things into truth. Galatians 5.18 says, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. But if the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things, there is no law. We are led now by the spirit. And so many times people talk about if you're not, if you don't keep the Torah, then you are walking in, you are just walking in your flesh. It's not true. We are walking in the spirit. There is a fulfillment that's happened. One is outer form, which is the flesh. The other is an inner reality. There is no outer form. There's nothing in the Torah that's going to be like, all right, this is going to work on your love. This is going to work on your joy, peace, patience. It's all about what you need to do to be holy. Now, it's the fruits of the Spirit that make you holy. And that is an inner working. You have no control. You want to try to control something? Try to make yourself patient. Try to make yourself joyful when all of your kids are screaming and driving you nuts and you are running low. Try to practice self-control whenever you are you know, you're starving and you're on a diet and you're trying to be good, but then someone offers you something. I mean, these are things that can only be done by the spirit of God. And even under persecution, someone is literally all the martyrs burned alive, crucified upside down, boiled in oil. Um, all these things happen. And yet they were joyful and patient and still kind. That is the act of the spirit. That is the difference. Okay. So interesting. 
to, to see that difference. And if you want to know more about that, Galatians chapter three is amazing. Second Corinthians chapter three specifically talks about um, the old covenant, new covenant reality. Um, so I'm going to bring us back as I wrap up um, for a little bit on one of the things I think is really important for us to know is why did Jesus have to die? It's one of the things if we're going if we're going to have a solid foundation of faith, we have to be able to defend our faith. We can talk about the old covenant, we can talk about the new covenant, we can talk about the Torah, we can talk about this is what we're supposed to do and check this box and do these things, but if we don't have a fundam a deep fundamental idea of what the sacrifice of Christ really meant, how, why would anyone want to come and join us in this? Why would anyone want to know who Christ is? Why did Jesus have to die? He had to die in order to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy. He had to die in order to fulfill the law of Moses as a sacrificial lamb to atone for the sins. He had to become our sin offering. He had to provide redemption for us and forgiveness. He had to do that to purchase the church. He had to atone for her sins. He had to defeat the death, the stain of death and the curse of death that was put upon man from the beginning with Adam. Okay, um, that defeats Satan and that we may live unto righteousness. So remember, salvation means that we have been delivered from sin and its consequences. We are no longer slaves to that sin and the things that separate us from God. Jesus had to die in order to justify us before God. He saved us from the penalty of sin. That's I'm going to focus primarily on that justification point because that is why he had to die, to justify us between a righteous and holy God. Now, that is our salvation. And that is eternal. And that cannot be taken away. And I know that there are people that will argue that your justification can be taken away. Listen, if it could be taken away, it would. We would lose it. It's not up to us. It's one of those unconditional covenants that was given in Jeremiah 31, 31. Okay, let me go back and read that real quick because I think that that's really important to remember with our justification. Um, to know that this is what's offered to us. And it will also be offered to Israel when she comes back. It's an everlasting new covenant. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand and bring them out of the land of Egypt. Not like that covenant. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make on the house of Israel in those days. I will put my law within them. Remember how I talked about how it is an, an inner reality, not an outer. I will put my law within them and I will write on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Okay, this is the wedding invitation. Okay, um, this is the justification. This is the purchase price. If you were in on my 
Revelation study, we talked about this. We talked about the Ketubah, the Jewish wedding feast, okay? The betrothal period between the husband and the wife. When we take a commitment to Christ with that blood covenant, with that new covenant, it is a covenant of marriage, Okay? It is not to be broken. It is something that is sacred and is something that cannot be torn apart. But the, but where we are, it's, I almost said the problem. It's not the problem, although I'm just ready to go. Like, I don't want to be here anymore. You know, um, the problem is, is that we are just in the betrothal period. Okay. And in the betrothal period, the payment of the purchase price has been made and the bride has been set apart for sanctification. This is, means that she's getting her garments ready and she's making her garments white. White. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what works you do. It is your faith that refines you. It is your faith in the Holy Spirit and in Jesus and in the work that he did that will make you holy, that will ripen those fruits for when the groom returns, okay? And so that's part of that. The betrothal period is where we are. The groom has departed to the father's house, house where he prepares a room for the bride and the bride prepares and waits for his imminent return. We are here, okay? But soon there will be a chuppah, which is a surprise wedding, wedding gathering. This is where the groom comes and returns to collect his bride. It is a big deal. They blow trumpets. And no, these are not judgment trumpets in the end times. These are celebratory trumpets for the groom coming to collect her his bride. And then there is a seven-day marriage supper, which will likely represent the seven years of tribulation. Okay? So, um, the Jesus had to die on the cross in order to pay for our sin, in order to purchase us, and in order to redeem us. He paid the penalty for our sin. That's our justification. He purchased us legally through that blood covenant, and he is redeeming us in flesh, and he will do the same for Israel in flesh and in spirit and in land. He is the kinsman redeemer, and we will go into more detail about this next week, but that's what he is, and that is why he had to die on the cross. Um, he had to qualify as a kinsman. He had to be able, and he had to be willing to purchase us. This is all of the hidden treasures that are in the Old Testament, that's in Ruth, that's in um, Leviticus, to know what those blood offerings actually mean. To know what the law of redemption is, which is in Leviticus 47 through 55. To know what the law of Leverite marriage is, which is in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. These are things, these are little trails to, to see where, where we fit in, where Israel fits in, and where Jesus powers over all of it. And is it's a shadow of what Jesus is to come, um, is and is to come. So... I'm sorry, I know this was a long one, but it was a really, there was a lot to cover. Um, Next week, we are going to cover part one of the historical books. Um, I am traveling next week, but I'm going to try to record this um, anyways. I'm going to try to do it 
so we'll see. Um, it might have to skip a week. I don't know. It depends on how many people in my class can come early. Um, so we've got Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, and 2 Samuel. We will primarily cover, this is coming, once they come out of the wilderness and they're coming into the land of Canaan, they're coming into the promised land, there are people, there are giants in their land. There are a lot of unclean people, a lot of evil people and nations, and and they have to basically clean house. And we're going to see that in Joshua and in Judges. We have a little beautiful break in Ruth. And then first Samuel is David establishing his throne and um, second Samuel where they build a real full first temple of God. And, and Israel is one. The kingdom isn't divided. It's a very beautiful time before you know what hits the fan. So thank you for hanging out with me and, and sticking through. And I just pray that you guys have a blessed day and I will see you next time.